Hello and welcome to the 37th episode of the Mike McNair Revolutionary Strategy Series. Today is Saturday the 1st of February 2020 and I'm your host Tom O'Brien. This glorious morning the great anti-imperialists Che Guevara, Thomas Sankara and Franz Fanon are saluting us from the hallowed halls of the dialectical materialist afterlife as they watch the UK finally throw aside its role as EU vassal state, as a colony of the EU overlords in Brussels and is finally free once more to lead its own destiny and plough its own furrow. A great day indeed. This week we continue our reading of Boss Level Chapter 9, Republican Democracy and talk all about the need to ditch bureaucratic centralism. This week I have the new Patreons XNFEC, Ollie Vert and Patrick Kate to thank. If you too would like to help keep the good ship Alpha afloat, why not join the Patreon gang gang? For $5 a month, you get two Patreon-only episodes, the right to vote on the Reading Group series and other random stuff too. If you don't have any spare though, just spread the commie word and give me a good iTunes review. If you'd like to comment on the show, please do so on the YouTube channel and make sure to like, subscribe and share. And you can find me on Twitter and Facebook too. Okay, to the discussion. Let's do it. Number 14, can I read it? You do it, Derek. It is impossible to achieve either the Democratic Republic or the Independent Workers' Party without rejecting both bureaucratic and Bonaparte centralism and legal federalism. This is true all the more of the struggle for a global or continental democratic republic and those for an international workers' party and international trade unions, etc. This is a fundamental lesson of both the Comintern and the and of the petty caricatures of the Comintern that the Trotskyists have made. Oh my God, do I agree with this one. But what's unfortunate yeah. though is like Bonaparte centralism and bureaucratic centralism is endemic to even people who don't think they're doing it. You know, like you wouldn't think of like Bernie Sandersisms to be Bonapartist, but it actually kind of is, particularly when you look at the way in which the U.S. is constitutionally structured and like the kind of projections they're putting on what Sanders could possibly do from the executive. It's a fundamental misunderstanding of what the executive is. And you can only do that if you have like Bonapartist wet dreams. I mean, this is going to be a, this is like a super important ask and one that we haven't you know done yet. That. Completely makes sense if you actually think through what this kind of program would would mean, right? Like if you act if if Sanders actually got in power and was like, okay, I'm going to do all these things I promised against a Congress that is incredibly recalcitrant, it would require constitutional revision in the direction of Bonapartism, because you just have an executive that was way out of whack with the the Congress, like all of this stuff that. We've just read about the international concerns me greatly when thinking about what might happen next in the UK. So what you're saying, Derek, is that Bernie Sanders is Stalinist, just like all the conservatives are afraid he is? No, but yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's kind of like the, the commonality between social democracy and Stalinism that we were like was mentioned earlier. People like conservatives' fears about what Bernie Sanders can do as like a quote-unquote Bonapartist centralist like social democracy all their nightmare fuel it kind of is Bush's fault and I know it started before that but in my lifetime the executive branch expanding and kind of going beyond the bounds of its original intent in my lifetime really got kicked into high gear with Bush and continued under Obama right and is continuing now and so like they're just as much to blame if that's what they're afraid of which is funny to me my point being is that after 9-11, it really, like... Oh, yeah, it went on overdrive. Or, yeah. or, or it became obvious. Let me rephrase it. Maybe it didn't go on overdrive. I actually just think it became impossible to hide because before that, this was mostly in the realm of procedural bullshit. And after that, it was, like, explicit political bullshit. And I, even though, effectively, there's no difference between the two, making it a political point means that everybody just ends up in bad faith. And it, it's, it's a bad faith shared by both parties in the U.S. But you want me to talk about something that I'm scared of. Is that I think this tendency is actually more advanced in the U.K. than it is in the U.S. And people, because, one, there's no real, you know, the, the Constitution is 
a ghost, literally. But you have an unwritten constitution. It is a constitution of traditional norms. Like, good luck reigning that in. That, that reminds me of a joke by Frankie Boyle. He, had, he was asked to do a joke on a comedy show about the Queen Mother. And he said, he did a Queen Mother's voice. He said, I'm so old that my fanny is haunted. <laughs> that made me laugh. Sorry. <laughs> I got to cut what? all of that out. So you're saying the, the UK constitution is uh, the Queen's ass? Is that what fanny. I'm understanding? Well, you see, in, Amer- in England, the fanny is your, is your vagina. So he basically uh, said, oh. I'm, so, I, I'm so old, my vagina is haunted. It was a classic line. I wasn't able so to. The US con- so the UK constitution is the Queen's vagina. Uh-huh. The, the Queen Mother's, the dead Queen Mother's vagina rattling okay. in her grave. Now, okay. uh, <laughs> that inspires me with hope. Without a national, like, constitutional monarchy, like, that joke would read kind of alt right. But I'm, I'm with it. I'm with it from you, Tom. <laughs> me too. You know, the whole thing with Bernie Sanders, though, is the minute that if he actually got elected and he started trying to be like Bonaparte centralist, all these constitutionalists would come out and the Supreme Court would start ruling in all these weird ways that they would never rule before. So, so somebody was mentioned something about like what's going to happen in the UK. Who was going to say that? Just me Gary. and Kyle. Uh, me and Kyle were both worried about it. Like, like the kind of uh, weird play between Johnson and Corbyn, where you you increasingly have not a party identity but a personality identity. And I actually don't. I'm, I'm not critiquing Corbyn's politics here, or saying that it's necessarily bad. But like, that's what's going on. Like it's not like there's a mass investment of the work of a working class identity in labor. There's a mass investment in working class identity in Corbyn. I disagree, Derek. You, like you believe think... that there's a ma- that, that that people have a lot of faith in the Labour Party in general? Because I I, think... I I don't see that, but maybe I'm wrong. Like yeah, like you know, it depends on what type of media you get to consume. Like definitely, if you're consuming like British mainstream media, you think everybody hates Labour. And I think the thing is that if you look to the polls, Corbyn's actually unpopular, but the policies of Labour are popular. Like most people, I think, think Corbyn is kind of naff, but they like the policies, you know, and I actually think Corbyn will win the election. I don't think he'll get a majority or anything, but I think he'll be the next prime minister. I'll, I'll put that call out there now. What, what, what we should expect is some kind of, Maybe not to the same extent, but some kind of Syriza thing happening to to Corbyn. That's what I kind of expect. That's what we're going to get from all of these left parties, socialist parties getting to power and trying to be somewhat lefty or radical. I think we'll end up with now it won't be as as brutal as Syriza because they were made to bend in a very public way and they are it was very high, high drama. But I, I think we'll end up just with a lack of success from from these movements. But like we're all kind of signed up to that anyway, aren't we? Well, like I think broadly speaking, you're right. But it 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 it's not entirely Corbyn's personality that that concerns me. It's it's like everything in this international section that concerns me because the the entire strategy is contrary to points twelve to fourteen here. Yeah, um, that's my point too. Actually, it's point. not so much Corbyn. <laughs> Points one to fourteen. Let's get it straight. Point yeah, yeah, sorry, point. sorry, yes. yes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, I mean, you're you're saying you're gonna get crushed like Syriza, and it's like, okay, well, yeah, that was like foreseeable, and also it's horrifying that like so much energy has been poured into making this happen when it feels like the UK is pretty isolated on this right now in Europe. Like it doesn't feel like they have a lot of allies out there because nobody went to bat for Greece. Right. And it kind of feels like nobody's going to go to bat for the UK. The thing is, it's not as high drama. You know, you don't have this like IMF thing happening or the EU thing and they're going to shut down all your banks. So there is not that lever. They don't, they can't, feasibly use that lever the bourgeoisie but what you more than likely will have is you know just low level warfare at every opportunity at all levels of the state against the labor party so i think you're more than likely to have some kind of just like poor performing economy that will lead them to maybe not get re-elected in five years time that's the kind of scenario or to be a failure 
them to be stymied with all their major policies. Yeah. At best, we would be having like a mirror universe conversation of, oh my God, Trump's going to, you know, institute his every little whim with his executive authority. Then he gets the power and yeah, there's some things that he has under his executive authority that are quite nasty that it gets through. But the majority of everything he does is wrapped up in some like, you know, distant court case and, you know, maybe 15% of it holds up. And he ends up kind of just being like a regular, a regular president with, you know, a big fucking mouth. I don't know. Trump isn't even like especially extending executive authority. At least the historical way of looking at this is usually with an expansion of democratic rights. There's a, a shift from legislative to executive authority. I guess what's sort of interesting about what happened in the Bush years is that it's not really like a lot of like an expansion of democratic rights that I could think of that was, you know, seemed like that that was a meaningful counter response <laughs> in any way. Even with the kind of magnified executive authority structures we have, I think you would see Sanders. Yeah, I mean, listen, this guy plays ball. Like that's why he's there. That's why the Democratic Party isn't, I don't know, some people that are party insiders look to him as a, as, you know, someone who could rebuild the party. He's probably, I don't know, like Trump at that like comparable point in, in the campaign was not seen this way. Do you think with, if like Corbin goes the way of Syriza, you know, that, that this is going to keep happening over and over again, like, is there a point where the left like kind of like gets it and stops acting purely nationalist or is it just going to be rinse and repeat until something drastic happens? That's the dynamic. Like the, the dynamic is like Corbyn will be meteorant. Like that's who Corbyn is likely to end up being. That's the future of this, I think. Like at no point ever of any of the stuff I've ever come across in any of these Novara media types or the Labour Party, they never mention the profitability of capital. It's never even mentioned when it comes to what policies are possible or what's going to happen. So I just think it's going to go the way the meter on and then it'll lead to, you know, a mass kind of depression of, of leftists. But look, the leftists got behind Michael Foote in 1970s, you know, the late 1970s. They didn't learn the, their lesson with Michael Foote, you know. These left cycles come back like with the Labour Party over the Communist Party didn't, didn't do it. Going with Michael Foote, you know, against Maggie Thatcher, that didn't do it. Now it's going to be Corbyn against that. That doesn't do it. Are people actually going to learn? Because people forget their history very quick. That's the problem. Well, that was what I was going to bring up is like how much memory of Mito on is there, right? Like, because I know about that history. I think even most people I talk to on the left don't. Like, that was a big deal. That was a crushing defeat. And people like just don't talk about it. I mean, I'm sure everybody in this call has like heard of it, but like, so what happened was. It's, it's a bit of a complicated process, but basically Mitterrand builds up a socialist party behind him that gets him in power uh, as, as like a kind of uh, counterpoint to the communists. And he promises socialism. There is like a more or less a broad discussion in society in France about socialism happening there's like social reform discussions that are like way beyond what uh is being discussed under corbyn well no i'd say they're 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 around the same levels of radicalism at like the sort of higher level of radicalism you see in momentum or whatever and essentially the government is crushed by the financial sector it simply is not able to implement the policies that they want to implement because of the powers of capital strike and capital flight. And then they just turned like the, the most radical members of the meter on government are purged from the cabinet or removed from the cabinet. And they're the second sort of part or the second period of meter presidency becomes very reactionary. And it was just kind of the most radical instance of a broad-based social democratic move towards socialism like people talk about like chile and, and that kind of stuff but this was this was in the core this was like people were really seriously into it and it just fell flat on its face and that was 
like it had a major chilling effect around the world, but I don't I don't think it's very much remembered these days. Mitterrand was the guy who basically organized Thomas Sankara in Burkina Faso to get shot. That puts Mitterrand into perspective. Yeah, his his background was quite opportunist, actually. But I don't know if that was really the like I don't I, I wouldn't want to put it on Mitterrand's personality that that's why that fell flat. Yeah, he went the way the wind was blowing, but the wind clearly blew against socialism at that point in time. The lack of the international, huh? Well, you know, these institutions are supposed to be the kind of reservoirs for collective memory so that we don't forget the strategic and tactical, you know, data. We don't forget the lessons of, of these experiences. And what I'm hearing in this conversation and everything I know about, you know, party politics as it exists is that these organizations become the most organized way of stamping out the collective memory that you can't forget without like having some deep investment in it that gives you the traumatic response to do active forgetting on it. Everyone else wants to remember it, you know, if not just, just to spite you like the other side does, then just to, you know, for their own kind of steering being like, look, I don't want to be a loser. That was a losing strategy. I will remember that. I'm keeping that in my back pocket next time I hear something like this. This will be a memory I draw from. Now, most of the political operatives I know are the most amnesiac fucking people ever. They're more amnesiac than the general population. That's concerning. It's not because they don't have the institutions for it. The institutions aid their active forgetting. Yeah, I was going to bring something similar up before you mentioned that, Lexi. Um, I was going to talk about my re-radicalization and like the late aughts. And I read a book, I think it was 2007, it was during the end of the Bush years, by Naomi Klein, where she goes through and paints the failure of Keynesianism and, so and social democracy from Mitterrand on forward. So not just with Mitterrand, but also with the Sandinistas who ended up neoliberalizing a lot. And believe it or not, mentioning the Socialist Party in Chile, which came to power after Pinochet, who actually did neoliberal reforms that Pinochet couldn't achieve. All right. But her conclusion from all this was that it was a vast right wing conspiracy. And as a person who knows about right wing conspiracies, there are vast right wing conspiracies. But this was insane to me. There is a vast right wing conspiracy led by libertarians to somehow re-terrorized the world, even for wars that libertarians opposed, and that that was why all the social democrats failed, and we just need to double down on the same shit, and that it wasn't inherited into social democracy and Keynesian reconstructive policies themselves. And at that moment, I gave up on being a social democrat. But what's fascinating to me about this is the, the logic of institutions do not wish to win Winning would endanger many of these sectarian institutions. They would no longer have a reason to exist. And that is something we are not dealing with. And I don't know that this party apparatus deals with it either. I, I mean, I almost sound like a, a right-winger or an anarchist on bureaucratic drift, but it's real, and there's nothing in here that prevents it. Now, with that said, maybe we should talk about what is not said because – you know, we can actually finish this damn book, but also because maybe it'll address some of these things, but I'm not sure it will. Like, I think the thing is that I think that the sects are always going to survive in the rough times, but they'll be blown apart in the good times. And we've got to wait around for the good times or work on it. What is not said? I have said nothing in the summary about imperialism, although I've written on the issue at length elsewhere. The global hierarchy of nation states is real and justifies defeatism in the imperialist countries in relation to their colonial wars. But the primary conclusion from the Leninist theory of imperialism, the anti-imperialist United Front, which descends to the modern left as Maoism and Third Worldism, is shown by the experience of the 20th century to be a blind alley. I have said nothing about the permanent revolution versus stages theory. Again, a principal lesson of the 20th century is that both approaches are blind alleys. In addition, both are strategic approaches to pre-capitalist states and countries under global capitalism. There are a few of these left, but not enough to justify treating the, the issue as fundamental to strategy. I think to just talk about third worldism as a blind alley, which I agree, but not go into why, is like, like saying like, 
hey, you know, like the obsession of the left since the 1960s. We're just not going to like talk about it because it didn't work. Um, why didn't it work? Shut up. Don't ask. Seriously, because like this is the entire strategy of the new left. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I agree it didn't work. But, like, it's actually why it didn't work is even more complicated than what we went through with but the second international. The permanent revolution versus stage theory is interesting because I've never heard a, a Trotskyist admit that permanent revolution is for a pre-capitalist state. I'm a little bit unclear as to what it is other than having civil war forever, which I know it isn't that, but it always seems like that's what it ends up being. That's fascinating. Stage theory is interesting because, it, you know, this gets to several different stages, both Stalinist and Bernsteinian. And again, what are we dealing with here? They both seem to be blind alleys and like like everybody's a stage theorist, like even liberals are really. But like nobody is anymore. So I get that. But again, like that, that's a fundamental issue. So to just say, well, they're not capitalist problems; they're they're to pre-capitalist states. Yeah, it's true. But the people, a lot of people who said that, particularly in permanent revolution, didn't believe that. So I mean, I, I actually think like this is a little bit of a cop out. Also, because these two issues actually get onto problems in what we just went through in the what fourteen points or whatever, because there are issues in the fourteen points tied to this very thing, namely. One, the issue of confederated, non-confederated, and international blocks has to do with third worldism. Another thing that you have to deal with in third worldism is third worldism comes with not does actually start assuming non-Marxist modes of dealing with labor profitability in weird ways. They basically have to eventually reject labor theory of value to maintain it. And they have to place capitalism at I mean, what is it? Is it's imperialism as actually I mean, explicitly in Maoism, imperialism is a more dominant fundamental contradiction of liberal society than even capitalism is. Were you talking about like the idea that third world workers are like super exploited by first world workers? Yeah. And to, to maintain that, you have to move from labor from because the productivity rates don't justify that. And third worldists actually do know that. So what they have to, to do is say that it's about it's a mixture of productivity plus primitive accumulation. And you have to assume that nation states are also the prime actors, not sectoral economic development. Because I've even I've known some people who believe in labor aristocracy who went and looked at it by economic sector and says, like, it doesn't hold up as well for nation states as it does, like, say, looking at shipping versus looking at, like, clothing manufacturing. Like, this is just not really dealt with. It's like hand waved away. I mean... It is basically saying the two biggest issues of the second half of the 20th century and the answer to communism just aren't important or they were just they, they just didn't work. So we don't have to even talk about why. Like that's a big fucking deal. And I also think it's like kind of a confused idea because like, OK, let's say like through international trade. OK, let's say that there's a transfer of value from the periphery to the core through international trade right like let's say profit equalization transfers value from the periphery to the core but even if through this way first world countries are realizing prices of production higher than the total value produced in their country still workers in the first world don't get the surplus value well according to to some forms of, of third worldism it's actually a conspiracy of the state to buy off the workers through basically social democratic programs to thus give them value that they don't have and haven't earned. And also to hide the fact that they're not in productive capacity. That's why a lot of the debates about um, why a lot of Maoists and third worldists are super insensitive on um, productive labor versus general rage fund definition of the working class. So like they say that um, progressive taxes because yeah, progressive taxes, certain kinds of logistic forms, investment into logistics that hide. They actually take on a bunch of liberal arguments, believe it or not. But you don't need to you don't need to fund social democratic programs out of taxes. I, I get There's that, no... but but I'm just telling you what what this argument is. It's super common. A lot of people, even on the social democratic left, actually believe this stuff. And they don't realize where it's coming from or that it's not fully thought out because it fits their like, you know, poor workers in Chile mentality. Right, right. Like it's a good thing to self-flagellate over. It's also something you can't really do shit about. Yeah, it breaks the Marxist conversation. 
And that's yeah, it, like it really does. Like that's something some Maoist third world has figured out. They figured out that they're not really even like, you know, proper Maoists anymore. And third worldism had its own like life, you know, with it without that. And I guess the other thing to say here would be like those couple of paragraphs, pretty much everything besides the stuff on the international working class before, that's all this has to say about the problems of race and nation. If you're trying to apply revolutionary strategy, this book to an American context where, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that it's, it's not a, an issue other, other places, but in, in America, it's very hard to think about how to do, you know, politics without, you know, considering these distorting like effects of race and nation, or even gasp where, you know, dealing with national autonomy might be like a valid way of approaching something. So yeah, it is, it is interesting that this is the gloss. You know, there's, I know, and then this is a gloss chapter, but it's a glossy, very glossy gloss. Okay, I'm going to read it. I'll move on. Okay, I'll read this one. I have said nothing about one of the principal issues that has divided the left, that of Soviet defensism versus third campism. Views on the class character of the USSR, etc., are important to Marx's theory, but the fall of the USSR means that this is no longer a question of strategy. In relation to the national question, I have argued that the positive goal of the Workers' Party should be the international, continental, and eventually global democratic republic. The implication of this approach is that slogans about national self-determination have a secondary tactical character. In relation to gender politics, I have argued on the one hand that the self-emancipation of the working class means the self-emancipation of the whole class dependent on the wage fund. It should be obvious that this is inconceivable without the struggle for the self-emancipation of women as part of the struggle. On the other hand, I've argued that the idea of a united cross-class feminist movement as an effective political actor has proved illusory in the course of the last 30 years. So that was a better elaboration of, you know, some of the stuff that I was asking for in those previous paragraphs. But, you know, still slim advice. How much of this is like McNair hand waving and like dodging the issue, and how much of this is like it legitimately falls outside the scope of this book? Well, this book is supposed to be on strategy, so none of it falls outside the scope. Particularly when he's saying we need a continental and international left, even though he's only writing about the UK, which itself is weird when you really think about that dodge. <laughs> but when you really look at this, I think it definitely falls within the purview of this book. In so much, this book is about general strategy. And if it's right. not about general strategy, it's really just about the form of the communist take on the workers' democratic republic, um, an international democratic republic of that, then this is more limited than maybe people think it is. I also think, to be frank with you, I do think this is hand-waving away things that break up the idea of left unity. Because these are the yeah. these are the fracture grounds that left unity dies on, not actually the stuff that he writes about. Yeah. That's a solid point, Derek. I kind of wonder, though, for me, I think you, you kind of answered this question, but I kind of wonder if, like, these questions are outside the scope of the book because the scope of the book is a problem to begin with. Like kind of going back to our discussions last week about it being overly political and not social enough. But I think what part of what Derek says is is very instructive in that like he's conveniently ignoring the issues that make left unity fall apart. And I am very, very, very skeptical of left unity to begin with. So I'm like kind of disappointed if that if that that seems apparent to me now, but not surprised. I quite agree with, you know, what he says about gender politics. But again, that just doesn't begin to solve the problem of, you know, it's funny, there is a divide and conquer thing that happens with gender, but it usually happens in the, you know, patriarchal direction more effectively than, you know, the hysterical blue haired, you know, <laughs> feminist icon who, you know, says you're sexist for uh, something that is very socially common, you know, let's say, like, it, it usually tends to be, well, this person maybe like rape that person. We're concerned about this rather than, you know, some kind of feminist conspiracy. So I think those are big issues. I think what he says is correct about it, you know, in, in broad strokes, you know, across class alliance. Again, you know, the Clinton presidential run was a good glimpse at what that's going to look like. The, the major thing I have a problem with 
here is actually not the part about the national question, which again is such a gloss, a glossy gloss, but in bold strokes, I'm kind of on, you know, I'm, bored, I'm on board with it. I, I don't know if the idea of Soviet defenseism versus third campism is as strategic, like maybe like it shouldn't be in the best of all worlds, right? This shouldn't be as important as it is, but it very much is that even if you're a good activist doing good work, if somebody finds out that you're kind of prepared to do like democide denial about some obscure dictator, that turns a lot of people off for very good reasons. The idea that this is strategically irrelevant, like I get it. Okay. We're trying to zoom really far out, but as it turns out, this is a huge like symbolic issue of what, do you stand for a better world or do you stand for a worse world? <laughs> and, and it's something that is like that Marxists are fantastically desensitized to in, in a way that is, it, I, it just feels strategically counterproductive. And it seems to be it, like it should be in the purview of the book, considering the heritage of the, of the tradition, you know? Like I, I kind of appreciate how abstract this book is. And I'm always looking for metrics that can, we can subsume a lot of historical experience into some sort of data points on a very simple metric so that we could start to have a common conversation. I think that can be a very valuable exercise. I think this book does a pretty good job of pointing us in that direction. But the political bullshit that I've gone through because this is underdeveloped here <laughs> is like something I can't ignore. I really can't. And I think like anyone, anyone in the future, like, look, commune magazine crowd and small bean anti-revisionist Maoists might be able to do tenants unions right now. But what happens when your tenants find out that half your organizers think Pol Pot did nothing wrong? I don't know. Like something's got to give there. Well, I mean, that that's that's going to be a big problem and it continues to be a big problem. That, that's also where the the non-answer on third campism versus Soviet defensism leaves such a big deal. Like, I almost think if you read McNair's work, he he like one, it really is a have your cake and eat it too on Soviet defensism. You know, it's Hillel Tickton wasn't wrong and Lenin screwed up, but also like it's the best we ever had, and we have to like base something off of it. But most people end up being just straight out defensist. As as people who listen to this panel, when we had more people on it in the very beginning, could remember about the level of Soviet defensism we had to deal with before we could even talk about this book. And I also don't really understand why there's a different attitude towards gender politics and race than racial national politics here either. But you know, whatever. I I, I actually can't go into that explicitly. I I mean sometimes you know. Tom, I wish you didn't like delete all the like Mulbean Stalinism that was in the first episode because it would be instructive to people as to like <laughs> why it, like we probably seem like we're yelling at ghosts here sometimes unless people know what we're talking about. It's not edited out the live stream. Go watch the live stream then if you want to understand why we're so ready to and willing to dunk on both Stalinism but also Soviet defenses who make room for Stalinism and people who are nominally not Stalinist, but are 100% willing and ready to defend atrocity and to say we might need atrocity again without like attempting to advert it even. Like they're just like willing to do it. And then they get mad at you because you're quote unquote being uncharitable. And then they turn around and complain about Stalinist being mean to them. Like motherfucker, what did you think was going to happen? You know what I mean? You know what Lexi was talking about in regards to like, Interpersonally, it is a live issue. It just is. You can't defend dictators to normal people and expect them not to be disgusted by you. That's just how it is. McNair is really good, like from a from a distance, right? Looking at UK left politics from a distance, it's or maybe I should say in particular, specifically British left politics from a distance. It seems super turfy at times and super workerist. And McNair seems like one of the better people out there. With that said, like I sometimes have like a, a kind of gut wrenching that he is like shaking his head at the queer blue haired girl. You know what I mean? Like when when in reality, as Lexi said, like that is that's not really what happens in organizing. What happens is is like men build cult of personalities and get away with all kinds of toxic bullshit. That is way more of an issue than 
you know, in my experience, people don't take liberal feminism seriously except for liberals and feminist liberal feminists. Maybe I'm wrong, or maybe I'm like too much in like a, a left wing like female bubble or whatever. But like, it's not something that is taken up except for by people who are already like bought into that shit. You know what I mean? Like that's not like if you're in a communist organization org, you don't really have women advocating for a cross-class gender alliance or something like that. That's like, those are Hillary supporters. Doesn't mean we shouldn't develop like Marxist feminist thought or whatever, but like a cross-class alliance on women's issues specifically doesn't happen, you know? And the issues of race and, and nation are like a tremendous importance in the US. We have a very complex situation here when it comes to the relationship between indigenous nations and the United States that like can't just be ignored or mm -hmm. swept under the rug. You can't just sweep that away. I'm sorry. Like you can't sweep it away here. You can't sweep it away in the UK. I'm not as salty as Derek is, but I'm getting there. And, and in, some, <laughs> in some ways, according to Lexi, I am more salty than Derek. No, I, well, I mean about specific things about yes. the left, but, but not about this book. That's fair. Let's move on in, in the in the in the interests of uh, the forward progress of the revolution. Let's move on. <laughs> Mando yeah. lights. Mando lights. All right. Needs of the many. Rip. Derek, why don't you read it here? All right. Reform a revolution. The Mandalite Fourth International in general has argued for the creation of parties that are not permanently delimited between reform and revolution. The examples are the Brazilian Workers' Party, oh, Refundezone the Scottish Socialist Party, and so on. Comrade Kalinikos, ouch, in contrast, argues that the dividing line between reform and revolution is still fundamental. His principal conclusion from this is the need for a Leninist party, by which he means a bureaucratic, centralist, Trotskyist party. With the consequences that alliances such as respect, i.e. coalitions and fronts, all can be achieved on a broader level. The burden of the whole book has been that this is an ideologized form of a real political divide. The real divide is, on one side, for or against taking responsibility in a coalitionary government to run the capital state, and on the other side, it is for or against the open advocacy of independent interests of the working class, of the democratic republic, and of internationalism, because loyalist coalitionists veto this open advocacy. As I have said before, point 11, there can be partial unity around immediate tasks between partisans of coalitionism, loyalism, those of working class political power and internationalism. But the conditions of this unity is open debate and unflinching criticism of the coalitionist loyalists by the organized party or the public faction of the partisans of the working class political power. Otherwise, we might as well join the Labour Party, <clears throat> the, the, the French Socialist Party or whatever as individuals. The Fourth International is for unity in a party that involves at least the partial suspension of criticism, non-sectarianism. The SWP is for the unity in a coalition that involves at least partial suspension of criticism. In both cases, this is merely to give political support to loyalist coalitionists. The SWP's difference from the Fourth International therefore reduces the organizational separation of the Leninist, i.e. bureaucratic centralist party, without this party having the task of avert criticism of the coalitionists among its current allies. This is merely to be a sect. The ideological form of this counterposition of reform and revolution. I mean, one of these things is not like the other. Everything he mentions has failed. Uh, like this is where the datedness of this book really comes out because the SWP has largely collapsed. The fourth international has largely collapsed. The, the parties which were based themselves on the fourth international line have largely collapsed. This isn't even the same live issue that it was before. Like, was it ever a live issue? I mean, maybe, I, I mean, in so much that the Brazilian workers party actually had real power, but the thing is the Brazilian workers party did actually, like, this is the one thing where we can talk about because there's been, you know, Lula love has led to the social democratic inability to critique the Brazilian Workers' Party. But the Brazilian Workers' Party really did become a purely reformist party and collapsed under, under its own inability to have a popular platform. It's let unpopular right-wing people get some form of democratic legitimacy and then, like, basically wipe them out almost. And, and we're seeing this playing out in real time. The other movements that he mentions didn't even last that long. They pretty much collapsed under their own weight into sects. You know, and what killed the SWP and what killed a lot of the IS tendencies in other parts of the world are, are like 
publishing scandals and sex scandals and and power abuses and stuff like that that are, that even don't even read like political sex so much as just outright cults. So I mean, in this in this sense, like he's talking about a, a division of two questions that both sides have largely lost without any of this being reconciled or fixed. The Brazilian case is interesting because they basically, they kind of became unpopular because of corruption scandals that were a function of them being able to do business probably in Brazil to a large extent. If a large like socialist party became the dominant party in Ireland, you know, the Irish state is so corrupt (laughs) or in Italy or somewhere, it'd be so corrupt. God knows there would be money floating around and loads of scandals. Same in Venezuela. And like people don't like corruption and they're willing to throw parties under the bus, even if on the whole they've been better for the people, you know, even if they've been radically differently better. You know, corruption is one thing that really just destroys popular support like nothing else. He's thrown a lot of things together here, as far as I can see. What happens to the SWP and these things? I suppose it's a former corruption. It's more like an internal corruption that leads them to fall apart. When did the SWT fall apart? Was it like 2012? Yeah, between it was like 2012 to 2014. The ISO fell apart last year. The, a lot of their affiliates in other countries have been decimated. Like, I mean, like, for example, the IS was a major, was for a red faction actually pretty big in the Arab Spring and they got kind of liquidated. For you know opportunist reasons, unfortunately, they made bad coalitions and then ended up being sacrifice block for it. I think some of these things may still exist in Latin America. I'm not as quite sure of that. And then this last little bit here, otherwise we might as well join the Labour Party, French Socialist Party, or whatever as individuals. Uh, man, that's awkward considering stuff. That's the CPGB. Well, as individuals is, I think, the key sentence there. And that's like, what's okay, so what's the difference between joining as an individual and joining as like uh, an interest group within it or a part of it, whatever? Because, you know, yeah, sick burn, they totally join the Labour Party law. But, you know, they're trying to operate as a group in a way that this book does provide some cover for. And it's providing a general framework upon which you know, left unity people that want to avoid dealing with the big party at all costs and the kind of dirty break faction within the big party can agree on to some capacity. And that's, I guess, that's, you know, that's what McNair thinks is the real strategic question, like the deepest one, the most abstract. And yeah, he's ignored a lot of questions, but perhaps... Perhaps that's the scale of the book. It's really just on a like a one axis rational choice model. You know, I'm going to just read the last bit here. Or Kyle, have you read today, Kyle? I have not. Oh, good man, Kyle. Here you go. All right. All right. Marxists are social revolutionaries in the sense that we seek the transfer of social leadership from the capitalist class to the working class. We are also political revolutionaries in the sense that we understand that this cannot be fully finally achieved without the replacement of the current political state order. The Trotskyist conception of revolution has been the mass strike strategy. As it has become clear that this strategy is illusory, revolution reduces to the need for the Leninist party. That is, to a bastardized form of the false conclusions about the need for Bonapartist centralism that the common term drew from the belief that Europe was about to enter into generalized civil war. At a more abstract theoretical level, these ideas are given support by misinterpreting a real fact. This is that history moves at more than one speed, sometimes in a gradual molecular fashion, sometimes in extremely rapid processes of change. It is the extremely rapid processes of change that are commonly called revolutions. The Trotskyists then argue that we need a Leninist party for future revolutionary times. Some Trotskyists and ex-Trotskyists reverse the point. Until the outbreak of open revolutionary crisis, we do not need a revolutionary politics. The trouble is that social revolution and political revolution alike involve 
both the gradual molecular processes of change and the short burst of crisis. By fetishizing the short burst of crisis, the Trotskyists devalue the slow patient work of building up a political party on the basis of a minimum political program in times of molecular processes of change. The result is when crisis does break out, they have created only sex, not a party, and are effectively powerless. Well, I think we should probably go to our physical chemist, Puya. Yeah, what do you make of all I, of this? I, I will not stand for this analogy. <laughs> I will not stand for this. I'm like, what is he talking about? Molecular is because, like, you can have a. Uh, I mean, depending on the temperature, you know, molecules can go very rapidly. And I mean, inside of a molecule at every, pretty much any temperature, you know, if you like, you know, say you have a really big atom in your molecule, you know, the orbitals that are near. Huh? <laughs> I, I don't think he's meaning it in that sense. <laughs> no, but I mean, like, the of the engineer. I think, I think he's meaning it as in like the sense that there are like each individual is a molecule and you have to work on the individuals first. And then sometimes then there is like a systemic effect when you get to like a, a threshold of radicals that will catalyze the movement. I presume that's his point. I don't think he's talking about what actually happens inside molecular tra- <laughs> process. But, but, but it's like, it doesn't, it doesn't make, it just doesn't make sense. Though, Cause like it happens at more than one speed. And I'm like, you know, some electrons in the molecule, you know, they go at, like, relativistic speeds. Whatever, nerd. <laughs> okay, let's... let's <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, oh, yeah. I'm just kidding. I'm sorry I'm just kidding. These, these, these are Marxists, okay. okay? Their ideas of science are, like, three or four, like, revolutions behind you. Really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Uh, thank you. <laughs> but, like, electron, uh, electron revolutions, though. Electron revolutions. This I was is like, what part, part of the molecule? <laughs> like... Now, see, the, oh my god, you're so no, 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 this is the part, this is why we need engineers and scientists and stuff, is because this is some bullshit and we shouldn't tolerate it, really. I was, I was like, if you're this like, is, I mean, the nucleus, like, this is all I getting mean, fucking edited. This is getting edited. Let's fucking, <laughs> I mean, like, the electrons relative to the nucleus, I mean, the nucleus is like basically stationary compared to them but like <laughs> what's going on okay i'm gonna ask somebody else to talk <laughs> yeah. you, i think you should be bad for the fucking podcast at this stage fuck's sake right well, yeah. i had so many thoughts about this analogy that i was like this is just so wrong like this is just like this is just <laughs> Oh, this is just like doesn't make any sense. Like every the thing is every every analogy is incorrect. Yeah, no analogy is right. That's that's why there are analogies. But I do like. I think if you look at the the analysis he's given of of what trots do, is that they say we need a Leninist party because we might have a revolution, and then we don't actually do proper organizing because we have to wait for the revolution, or we you know we don't or do. They do. Or, or oh, they do, and then they still have a weird cult that, like, when things pop off, they're like, "Yo, this cult's been real cool, but like, there's stuff going on outside. I gotta go." Yeah, I mean, yeah. but the weird thing is, like, you look at the IS and like the Cliffite forms in particular, um, and I'm talking weird trot speak right now. There is this tendency to like be super reformist till you're not. Like a lot of these people, like they'll support every Democrat, like progressive Democratic reform, but they actually do it on impossibleist grounds because when it fails, we can implement our transitional program, but and we'll be able to build the party then. But we need the party to do that. But we need to build the party. But we need the party to do. It's like this impossible catch twenty two. That's real, and it's highly destructive. Trust aren't the only people who do it, though. I mean, like I think every tendency has this faction in it, honestly, including even the Kautskyists. So, like maybe he's just shitting on the group he knows the best. And, like, Trotskyists here can be a stand-in for, like, you know, kind of left comms and, like, autonomous even. Because he's talking at such a grand level of generality. So, some of this still applies. It's not the Leninist party stuff. It's not the fetish of a form or something along these lines. But it's the relationship of, you know, lull activities to up- uptick activities when Our things pop off. It can work this way sometimes where they're like, we just need to have, like, invariant faith to the program and then when we're in a revolutionary moment, uh, we can be the brain of the revolution and take over. 
do how Catholic. Yeah. Like, do people agree with like this point of having like this final paragraph about you need to work with the gradual process and his basic critique of how we should be acting in a standard way for both the for the social revolutionary part, the revolution and the, the prior to revolution, how we organize. Stephen Jay Gould, that's all I got to say. This motherfucker read Stephen Jay Gould, that's all I got to say, because that's what this reminded me of immediately, just applied to revolutions. Like the punctuated equilibrium theory of evolution. Yeah. Uh, like that's what this reminds well, me. No, that's different. That's different. The punctual e- equilibrium is not a, a whole load of small micro changes and then a big burst. Well, you, actually, actually, it is like that's. The I thing. thought it's more that you have a dramatic change in your environment and you have uh, well, immediate you responses. Have, you have you have micro changes and then you have real dramatic changes come in immediate responses to change the environment, but you are evolving at all times. Yeah, so, I, I think that that is this is basically Engels' uh, first law of punctuated equilibrium. Just just kind of bring it back to the context here is mm-hmm. that yeah, I mean, I think everybody thinks that you know un- unless you're you know a real walking you know straw man, like everybody thinks there needs to be activity in times of lull and activity in times of uptick, and the question is. How do you do activities in the walls that keep you together and competent for times of uptick that don't distort your reaction to the uptick? And it's very difficult to conceive of what would do that. And this is where burnout comes from because, you know, just sometimes you can tell lull activities are sort of, you know, busy work or something just to keep everyone associated. That's not how you keep the flicker alive. It's, it's hard to imagine the kind of activities we can do during the law that don't distort our eventual whatever role that we could take as agents in those, you know, bigger moments, those things like, and, and the classical Marxist answer is parliamentary activity and trade union activism to a lot of us that doesn't make a lot of sense, or at least, you know, in order to engage with that, we need a very unorthodox way of doing it that, you know, the Marxist literature, it doesn't always help with. What, what, what we can say right now with definite certainty is what not to do, is, which is this kind of like trot shit, which isn't just trots, but I was courted by a local trot org, trot sect, I should say. You know, I went along with it for a little bit just to see what it was all about. Just like five people like reading their newspaper and then like they'll try to fish one person at a time then talk about some of the newspapers. It was like almost like a caricature the only thing that was not caricature about it was that there was actually women and and queer people in the org which was nice but beyond that like it was just like i expected and they had like rote answers and when i really started to challenge them they couldn't like really deal with it in a way that was in in bad faith they called me a bernstinian what i'm what i'm trying to say is like we are in a period of law mostly right now and they were just doing busy work more or less Seems obvious to me that the, when I when I when I asked questions about this, their response was like, "Well, like we need a mass party to do this," and I'm like, "What you're doing isn't going to get you a mass party," and they can't deal with that. You know, it, it's kind of what Derek was talking about. You need a mass party in order to do that, but we don't have a mass party, but we need a mass party. This is our catch twenty two, right? Is it not a catch twenty two? Is it? You know, it's a function of of how people are living and organizing themselves in the world, you know, or how active they are. If it was that was the thing we needed and we can't do it because we need we can't do it. Mass parties would never got off the ground. They obviously can start from small and get to mass. It just depends on what the politics and the social... Like, I think at the moment we're seeing that things are taken off the ground all over the place. Yeah, sure. that's, that's, this is true. We're coming out of a, of a historic lull, you know, Probably the 90s and the 2000s historic lull. I don't know that I have the same saying when reading of this as you do, Tom, but we've talked about this a million times before. I don't want to bog that down today. But I will say that one of the things about this period of normal is not so much what's happening, but we have a mass movement. But one of the characterizations of this mass movement is actually most of these things are dying. These morbid organizations are like falling by the wayside, and they have been since Occupy. Even ones that came out of Occupy are starting to die. They should and, die, though. They yeah, well, all die. I, I want to talk. I want to talk about something I, I saw recently. 
because the, the building for some of these other things that we think are mass have stalled, even though we're in this time of really big action. Like the, the DSA is not like the DSA grew from like 6,000 people to 30,000 people in like three months. And then from 30,000 to 50,000 in two years, but it's been stuck at 50,000 for about a year now. And that's paper members too. And so like what I've started to see them do is like people talk about Bernie as almost a religious experience. And I'm serious. And that it's, it's actually doing the thing that I used to see these small sectarian things do. It's becoming its own sect in an active time, in an active period, because it doesn't really know what to do. Like we, like this is a moment where there is a buildup. There's a real buildup. There's a, there's a mass discontentment, but we really don't have shit to funnel it into. Really? We don't. Not yet. Like the DSA isn't going to cut it. You might have more in the UK and I'll grant you that this is where the situations between continents are actually very different, but like, I don't know where this stuff is going to go or where it's going into. And it actually right now seems to be going into in a way, weirdly revitalizing the Democrats in the States that like there's a drift to like a new progressive center in, in a Marx, not in a centrist sense, but like in the sense of a center of progressivism that's around the, to the right of Bernie, to the left end of Elizabeth Warren territory. Like, I don't see that reviving socialism in the U.S., like, really, even though everyone likes the word socialism more, what they mean if it's a fucking post office. But Derek, say, for example, the reaction to 2008 was Occupy. Occupy was crap. Mm -hmm. You know, the reaction to Occupy is Bernie. That's definitely a progression. Yeah, which is... And the DSA. Is it that, that we think it's going to fall apart and after that, like, who would have thought the DSA would, like, be 50,000 in 2011? Who would have, you know, what odds would you gotten that? Yeah, like, that's the thing. We would have got a million to one. We're in a time period where the United States literally has almost doubled the population and it's not even to the same size as the SDS. And we're talking about it as the second coming of fucking leftist Christ. And yeah, it's, it's 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 important. It's important to know that yeah, it's it's a kind of class delimited phenomenon because it's happening in you know electoral politics, which a lot of our working class doesn't give a shit about. Like, just doesn't like something like Occupy gets. I mean, I don't know. It kind of whittled itself down, but there are a few moments there where it wasn't just the usual suspects. And if you want to make like scientifically stable description of the last you know years from like the '90s onward, is that what we have are these sort of for lack of a better term, tantrums, all right? They're these big uptick moments. No one really knows what they're about, and you kind of work it out as you're going. Usually, like, established politics, even established radical politics, finds them to be sort of unserious and silly and will aid in making people look at them as silly, even though it's the only time you actually see people getting together, I mean, for whatever reason. We have to basically orient towards the expectation that we live in a time of lulls and tantrums, right? And we want to, yeah, of course we want to see these like pop-up struggles go somewhere further. Initially, it brings me back to all those old Marxist questions of, of party and program. But, you know, when I, when I think about it, like all of my attempts to do party and program seem a bit premature, <laughs> considering that the situation we have is not like a, a more stable sense of movement, that carries between these uptick points. And I think maybe that sense of cumulative inertia is the bigger difference between the time of the first to, to the second international and our time is because yes, we have atomization dispersal and yeah, it's not even like we lack periods of uptick cause there fucking are. It's just that in between those periods, you have only a sort of like, alienated layer of like political specialist kind of activity. And, and that's not the situation that we were dealing with or that the communist movement, the socialist movement was dealing with during the heyday of trade union struggle. There was an everyday orientation towards building workers power that, so the lull activities were kind of obvious. The things that you would do between the uptecks, pretty obvious, you know, to a degree. Yeah, as I don't want to sound super pessimistic. I don't think things are getting worse, even though sometimes I know I sound that way. But I, I, I don't think that at all. But I think we, what we have is this period of like progressive bubbling up. We can't do anything with it. And it's actually it is within a very specific strata of the working class, if it's in the working class at all. 
it doesn't carry over to the whole working class, even the whole working class of like what you know some people would call identity interest groups. It doesn't even carry over there. What do you do with that? And no one really knows. And what what starts to what starts to falter then is it's not just the busy work aspect of it, it's the cultic aspect of it. That's the elephant in the room. These things start to sustain themselves and they're kind of like revelatory, not revolutionary, revelatory experiences because you have a new way of seeing the world. But that's a very individualistic approach. That's a substitute for identity and it is not class consciousness, even if people think it is. And so what do we do right now that takes this momentum that we actually are seeing? Like, I I, I do think there's real momentum, Tom. I don't want to sound like just like there isn't because that would be bullshitty. But what do you do with it? I got no idea. I still don't know. I got nothing. I tell you, you set up a podcast and you get those commie dollars from the Patreon. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we laugh. Yeah. Most of you, you laugh all the way to the bank. I mean, like, we, like the, one of the funny things, I mean, I've said this a couple of times, even though it's basically like one of the things about the, the social democratic moment we live in is we're kind of all petite bourgeois now. <laughs> like even though we're not like we're, we're still dependent on the general wage fund for the most part but like oh, man living off those fat patreon dollars oh, yeah I'm, yeah i don't know if, a new pair of socks this morning if you do the, the, the run through <laughs> if you do the labor theory of value like rent math how much of us are getting above the value we're creating oh <laughs> probably not much like, at all. like i wonder if you get one dollar an hour I'd say if I got one dollar an hour, that's about. It's probably not far off. Maybe two dollars an hour. It depends on the month and how much I put into a particular podcast set myself. But yeah, I mean, it's not a lot of money. Uh, as a side note, the back I've been doing this thing for this other podcast project I'm doing about tailism and how that meaning changed over time. And one of the things I noticed is like. This book talks about this a little bit. In the beginning, like the communist movement was vying with the socialist movement for working class support, right? And the communist movement always lost and it got more and more insistent on the problems of tailism as it lost, right? Well, this working class people just obviously don't know what's good for them, so we have to lead. But what tailism began to be is like everybody tailing the parties, the political class, not the working class, because because the parties that the working class had liquidated themselves into became more and more dominant. And now everyone's just chasing them to get more of their market share. But the working class actually isn't even in them anymore. They don't care. They're not, they're not that politicized. They are in very specific areas and regions, but if you actually look at it, they're kind of well-off areas and regions. And that's itself got to be explained. Sir, you're, you're talking about like a section of the working class uh, being in well-off areas. And that was specifically the section of the working class that's involved in political parties? Is, is that what you're saying? Specifically in the DSA. The DSA's largest chapters are in fair, relatively well-off cities. Oh, well, right. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, like, that, there, there's really no way around that. And like, if you even look at the progressive, like the squad, the only exception to the squad as far as like, that's a weird thing, but but they, they come from like areas of recent gentrification with the exception of of Michigan and Dearborn, which is a very specific situation. I personally just don't know what to make of that because I don't want to say there's no working class representation in the DSA. That's not true. I've been to DSA meetings, but it's a very specific kind of working class. It's way younger than the median age of the working class. It is it is whiter, not totally white, but it is whiter. It's um, more educated. And that can't be really missed. And a lot of, I hate to say it, but a lot of like standard liberal, like demographers point this out and everyone's like waving their hands about it, but it's kind of true. That definitely checks out in terms of like where the political action is in the working class. I I would, yeah, I would agree that it's not that the, the organization doesn't have working class people in it. It's just that it's a very narrow section of the working class. I, I, I don't agree with the perspective that it's all PB and that's all there is to it. Is it not the case as well that like socialism in Marx's time when it came up a lot of time was a lot of petty bourgeois. It's not always the least well paid of the working class that drive it forward. Well, Marx, Marx is, we were talking about this the other night, like see Marx was the class A and Engels was, I don't even know, petty bourgeois. His sugar daddy status. Yeah. I believe his class is sugar daddy. 
On this episode, you heard the team tune The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters and Night of the Purple Moon by Sunra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our network's sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit, Jumpsuit Utopia and Swampside Chats. Thank you.